The following is a North Carolina Baptist resource. For more, visit ncbaptist.org. Why is safety and security important in ministry settings? First of all, protection of our children. Second, opportunity for grooming behaviors. Have you heard that word before in in relation to protecting your church? Tom's going to discuss that in much more detail in a few minutes with grooming. Protection of the leaders of your church, keeping them protected from any um, negligence, uh, lawsuits, those type of things. Protection of your church from adverse media coverage and lawsuits. Um, First impressions and parental expectations. And I want to touch on that briefly because the millennial parent, they want to protect their family. They want to protect their child. So when they come into a a setting, a church setting, or they're going to sign them up to go somewhere overnight, they're going to be looking at those forms you give them. They're going to be looking at the environment that you're keeping them with. They're going to be looking at who's going. So we want to make sure that the first impression that we give parents is that we understand protecting their children is the most important thing to them as well. Use of volunteer-based ministries. How many of you have enough staff people that you never have to use volunteers to go on an overnight? Doesn't happen very often. You know, you're counting on your volunteers. Also, the church is viewed as an easy target by predators. Unfortunately, um, and you can just read the newspaper and you can see that that's an issue that we have right now currently in our society. And part of effective outreach ministry to the community. When you can tell someone what you're doing to protect your assets, which are your children and your students, and how you're preventing the grooming process, how you're preventing predators from being a part of your environment. Abel Harlow did a child molestation prevention study, and this study found that pedophile molesters averaged 12 child victims and 71 acts of molestation. That's average. An earlier study by Dr. Abel found out that out of 561 sexual offenders, there were over 291,000 incidents, totaling over 195,000 victims. It's a lot. These are enough victims to fill two and a half superdomes. The same study found that only 3% of these sexual offenders have a chance of getting caught. Some of these statistics, you may, you, you'll find different things that tell you just a little bit different from that. We're going to hand out a sheet at the end that has some statistics for you to share with your church. Uh, those are alarming statistics. The Abel Harlow study revealed that 93% of sex offenders describe themselves as religious. Sexual abusers within the faith community have more victims and younger victims. Why do you think that happens? These kids don't want to tell or share if something's going on like that. And they're taught in the church that they're safe and that you trust everybody. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons there, as well as we're going to talk a little bit in a few minutes about the gatekeepers and who they are and how groomers even groom our gatekeepers. The disturbing truth is perhaps best illustrated by the words of a convicted child molester who told Dr. Salter, I consider church people easy to fool. They have a trust that comes from being Christians and they tend to be better folks all around and seem to want to believe that good exists in all people. So many reports that have not been actually reported anywhere except in the church have gotten to the pastor or to some leadership in churches and never goes to child protection services or to the police because we want to handle it within. We want to take care of it within. We can do this on our own. So those that are preying on children are going to look for those weak spots, those places they can be a part of. So often we hear it can't happen in our church. Reason some people say is that, you know, we all know each other. It just can't happen in our church. We know everybody. There's no way. But let's look at some of these statistics. 33% of all girls and 16% of all boys will be abused by the age of 18. 93% know their abuser. 34% are family members and 59% are acquaintances. 7% is all that it is, the strangers. Less than 30% of abuse is reported to police, and less than 10% of that number results in a conviction. 
So even though when we talk about prevention and we talk about background checks and those kind of things, is it really foolproof for us when we look at the fact that there's going to be nothing on there? Um, more than 40% of abusers were juveniles. 14% of that number of juvenile abusers were under 12. Tom's going to touch on peer-to-peer abuse as well today. Children are most vulnerable between the age of 8 and 12, and Child Protective Services finds enough evidence to prove a new claim of child sexual abuse in the U.S. every eight minutes. Those are alarming statistics. Understanding sexual abuse and abusers. We cannot reduce a risk we do not understand. What we believe shapes what we do. And, you know, if you think about that, if you don't understand what you're up against, you can't, you can't do anything about it at that point. So, for example, I saw the behavior, but only in hindsight did I realize that it was bad behavior. Now, so that may have been when you hear the grooming process, something that seems innocent enough to some, but was a grooming behavior. And somebody may see it and not report it because they thought, oh, they were just playing. It was just an accident. Yes, I saw the bad behavior and I understood it to be bad behavior, but I didn't know who to share it with. So we also will just touch on reporting, how to report and who should be responsible for reporting and who who that should be reported to. Yes, I saw the bad behavior and I understood it to be bad behavior and I shared it with the leadership, but it didn't go any further. That's probably the saddest one of all is that we would share it and it not be dealt with. Facts versus misconceptions. What do our churches currently do? Well, we do criminal background checks. Some do. You know, some still don't because we go back to that part where we say, we know everybody. There's no way this could be going on or would ever go on. It doesn't have to be going on now. Um, Child check-in system, where we use a child check-in system to make sure that the same child is given to the adult that brought them there. You know, we go through those, which is important, policies. Um, touching on policies in a few minutes, but policies, what good are they if they're in a notebook on a shelf that nobody ever knows or they're never trained or we never follow up with our policies? Or we've heard many times, do you have policies in your church? Well, we do. We have some uh, unwritten policies, you know, things that we know are just standard that we're going to do. But how do we enforce that? How do we follow up with that? Two-adult rule. This one gets a lot of our churches because the two-adult rule should really be two adults that are unrelated. And that's very difficult sometimes in a small church setting because a husband and wife would want to serve together. And some of the solutions to that could easily be a husband and wife on the same Sunday, but one is with another person in another room with a different age group and the other, so they both can serve at the same time. Having served on staff in children's ministry, that's, that's a tough one because you run into a lot of, well, I don't want to do it if I can't do it with my daughter or my husband or, you know, I, I don't want to serve in the nursery or go on that trip with them. And what other things do we do at present? Anything else you do in your church right now? Does anybody not do background checks in their church? You don't have to answer out loud, but if you don't, that should be the first thing you go back and get started. And we can help you with some companies that do a good job. If you don't have a child check-in system in your children's ministry, you need to go back right now and you need to do that. You need to set it up. And Dolly can help you with with those kinds of things. If you don't have policies written down, you can call your insurance company. Insurance companies that that ensure your church have uh, examples of policies for churches and for ministries. Uh, You can call other churches, but let me caution you, don't take the policies and just put your name on it and say we have policies. You've got to make sure people in your church understand those. If you're not doing these things, you you really need to... this, This is an immediate thing that you need to go back to your churches and you need to say we need to start doing doing these things. 
and we'll move further along. But yes, sir. This past year, I just got our church to do the criminal background checks. I lost two people, but I and four said we've got to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, my intention is hopefully this this coming year, 2020, is to be able to through my security committee mm-hmm. to do the, the child checking mm-hmm. system. I mean, we can't as pastors drop all of this on people, knowing that I lost two. Yeah. 40 plus ladies that have been in the nursery doing a lot of stuff. You know, I wish we could, mm-hmm. but you have to do some things progressively. Progressively. Um, yeah. But, and like say, I'm even in, in the church where I've inherited is policies. We have all of them that we've got things that the church is not doing and have been doing mm-hmm. for 50 years, but we've got it in writing. Right. I agree with all these things, but you have to progressively do these kinds of things. Absolutely. Having served on staff, that was one of the most difficult things because I had the same thing. I come in and I say, we need to start doing background checks. And I had a lot of ladies that had served in the nursery for many, many years that said, I don't want to give you my information and I don't want it on a background check. And it was a process to help them understand. And educating is very important because, you know, when you got a situation like that, educating them the one of the things we want to do is protect you too. If I were looking at you and I said, the reason that we want to make sure this is in is not because I don't trust you, but it's because I need to protect you as well. Because we don't know anymore the situation. You know, we want to make sure they're protected as well. And you're absolutely right. It is a process that you have to, it may take you a couple of years, but it needs to be implemented. And when he talks about grooming and how to watch for grooming, that's going to help you with the awareness training because it's also going to make you very aware of what to watch for as you're putting these other things into place so that we're not just saying, let's focus today on this. Because you're absolutely right. You've got to take it or you're, you're, all your workers would walk out if they didn't understand that in, in the beginning. So you've got to get them on board. And that's what he's going to talk about a little bit, too. Why does this continue to be a problem? Once again, we don't understand it. Our efforts are not related to the risk. We think we're fine and grooming process is the key. And this, he's going to dig a great deal into the grooming process. Sexual abuse, the size of the problem with victims. 60 million sexual abuse survivors are in the United States. One in four females and one in six males. 66% of males do not disclose until adulthood, if ever. And with the peer-to-peer, there's much more. There's a 300% increase in peer-to-peer sexual abuse that's being reported now. But a lot of times it comes later. Size of the problem with the abusers, the number of victims for an average male abuser who molests boys is an average of 150 victims. Who molests girls is an average of 52 victims. So you see how that is not what we would think from the media. It's not what we would think from what we read, what we hear, even the statistics sometimes. Average male abusers begin victimizing at 13 to 14 years of age. One of the things that we started um, discussing at our roundtable when we were talking about how we can help churches in protecting their church is why is that? You know, why is that happening? Why at such a young age? Do you think, did anything come out of that that talks about, because that's middle school age, Mm -hmm. because of the pain that they personally feel that they've experienced? I think that I went way far, sorry. Let me go back where we were. Yes, some of it, statistics show that sometimes it is from maybe their own life where they have been abused themselves. Could be from situations of bullying. We're going to talk about some of even how that ties into it. Um, where, single parent homes. Yep, single parent Not homes. Not just fathers absent, also some mother absent. Single parent homes, mm-hmm. uh, pornography. The, the rise of pornography because of the instant access online, mm-hmm. um, online uh, social media chats. Imbalance between kids of even size and age and those kind of things. Because, well, in reality, in our churches, in a smaller church, we sometimes have wider ranges of ages together in a classroom. Not understanding right from wrong. The sexting has uh-huh. become really, really big um, using text. 
It's going from elementary to middle school. It's a big change form too. That's correct. Yes. The problem will grow in our churches, unfortunately, because abusers go to where barriers are the lowest. Barriers are lowest where information is weakest and we rely heavily on background checks and we cannot rely so heavily on just that. Yes, you got to get those in there because that sometimes is a deterrent when you're saying we've got to be background checked before you can even work in this area. But that that is a very big aspect of it. But you do know that, you know, we're not going to catch everything on there. I think this one was important. I, I, I thought this one was a very important thing to point out, too, is the stranger danger. How many of you remember growing up with stranger danger and you didn't take candy from somebody in a car? You didn't walk over to a car. You didn't talk to somebody over there because they're strangers, stranger danger. Well, one of the things that has been recognized now is churches do a great job of protecting their property and protecting playgrounds and those kind of things from the outside intruder coming in the stranger. But we must understand that there are two types of abusers, an abduction offender, which is your one on the outside that may just grab a child or lure them over to with a puppy or candy or whatever, but there's a preferential offender. And this is the one where they know they're familiar with 90% of children victimized by one known or trusted. And they look like you and me. We saw a lot of information on the Ministry Safe videos about protecting our sheep from the wolf from the outside, and we, we try to protect them real well inside, and then we think we're doing such a great job. But 90%, they look just like you and me, and they're from the inside. And how often do we think all abusers are male? Female abusers are out there too. Department of Justice says 90% of the convicted abusers are men, but 10% of convicted abusers are women. I'm sure you saw the newspaper recently about a situation where in a school setting, someone that had abused a child in the school setting and then ended up killing herself and her husband after she was arrested two days later in the Charlotte area. So... We're specifically here to talk about mission trips, overnight things, and that kind of stuff. But we felt like it was really important to talk about it from a church setting because it really does, some of the same concepts uh, are, are the same. By the way, my name's Tom Beam. I also work with Baptist on Mission. Uh, Dolly does the children's work and I do the youth student uh, work with Baptist on Mission. And we do lots of overnight mission trips. So we're getting to that, I promise. Uh, this really should be about a three-hour session. So we're talking fast and not going through everything because we don't have a lot of time. But we're, I'm going to try to talk fast. So the grooming process. Now, this is where when, when you heard Dolly say the preferential abuser, that's the ones that we know. That's the people that look just like you and me. So let me shock you. They're already in our churches. The ones that look like us. So we're, we do a pretty good job. I mean, how many of you on Sunday mornings have someone walk through your parking lots, make sure the doors are secure? Most churches are doing that now, right? I mean, most are. And, but because on the news, we see people going into churches and shooting people. I mean, that's, that's what churches are doing. But we're, we have to be protecting from the inside as well. And so, um, Grooming is the way the preferential abuser works almost every bit of the time. This is backed up by statistics. It's not something that we're just making up. The statistics back it up. So a groomer is someone that becomes your friend. They are grooming you as a gatekeeper. Any church member is a gatekeeper. We used to say children's Sunday school teachers, youth Sunday school teachers, deacons, pastors, ministers, elders, anybody that works with children, youth are the gatekeepers, chaperones, but not anymore. We think that we need to make sure that every church member understands they are a gatekeeper. 
It is everyone in the church's responsibility that our church stays safe, the gospel stays safe, or the presentation of the gospel stays safe, and that our children and youth stay safe. So every, everything we do, we're all gatekeepers. And so what a groomer does is they groom the gatekeeper. Uh, I was in a situation back in a former ministry that we had an abuser and I came into the youth position and it just so happened that I just got the heebie-jeebies from this guy. It wasn't anything he was doing other than he was always there, always there. Wanted to go on every trip, wanted to be at every Bible study, and I had never experienced that with an adult in a youth program before. And I think because I was brand new in the position, I think that's why I started my antennas. He ended up being an abuser, but not under my watch. But it wasn't anything I did. I just, it just didn't feel right. So when you have those, it doesn't feel right, then you don't have to go to that person and say, hey, it doesn't feel right that you're involved. But you can, I mean, because it may be innocent, but you can put things in place to where that person's not always in front of those kids until you know for sure. Does that, that make sense? So, so what I said to that guy is, no, I don't need a chaperone for this trip. We've already worked out our uh, adult supervision for this. You know, we've already done this. So if you ever have a gut feeling that something doesn't feel right, even if you're not ready to accuse, you, you do something that puts a barrier between that person and whatever makes you uncomfortable. All right? Because the groomer is grooming you. If you are, if you are in leadership, if you are a Sunday school teacher, if there's an abuser in your church, they're grooming you. They're already grooming you. Uh, now, um, and then they are helpful, trustworthy, and they're responsible. The abuser that I know, well, no longer because he's dead, but the abuser that I did know, yeah, he killed himself once he was found out. And, uh, but the one I know, he sang in the choir. He was a deacon. He was a youth chaperone. He had money, so he bought things. For the church, he took care of things. He was a good church member on the surface. So they're responsible. Okay, so what are they going to do? They're going to try to gain access. They're going to look for opportunities related to children. They're going to gain access to the gatekeepers. They're going to be helpful, trustworthy, and kind. We've talked about that. They know what a child wants and needs. They know, and they're age-specific communication. They know how to communicate. If you have a man in your church that's chaperoning and all they want to do is wrestle with the youth, boy or girl, that should throw up a red flag. It really should. And uh, they're going to know how to do that kind of stuff. But who are they going to groom? Someone who is unconnected, on the fringe, or in need. A child who is looking for someone to follow or trust. A child from a broken family or single-parent home. child already involved in alcohol and drugs a child already involved in pornography. This guy was after those who were from single-parent homes because they didn't, have the, they didn't have the home structure. And so he was always feeling like, that's who I want to minister to. That was, that was his MO. And that's, that's what a groomer is doing. They're looking for where those places are vulnerable. And... If they know a child is drink, uh, a teenager is drinking or using drugs, then they will use the "I will buy you alcohol, I will buy you drugs, I will keep you in your habit," and then you don't tell. And as long as I keep you in your habit, then there's a payment for that. That's what they're doing. Um, I'm sorry for talking like this. It, it, it just we're in a reality here that. Most people in churches do not even think of, and we've got to start thinking uh, this way. Um, once someone starts grooming, and a grooming is months and months of time. It's not 
today I groom them and tomorrow I abuse them. Grooming is a process of time. And you're going to see how for mission trips, what we're looking for on mission trips in just a minute, we're going to talk about that. But grooming is once they get to a certain point, I've built trust with that youth, boy or girl. I've, I've bought them things. I've told them that they can, they can uh, call me if they're in trouble and I won't tell their parents. Um, I've bought them drugs or alcohol. Once I've done all that stuff, then I start introducing. That's when the wrestling, oh, I accidentally touched you while we were wrestling. I'm sorry. But the next time he may not say or she may not say, I'm sorry. Uh, those kinds of things. Uh, you talk about sex kinds of things all the time or all of your jokes are sex, sexual in nature. And... Um, uh, playful touch, that accidental stuff. Oh, wait, you're in here taking a shower. I'm sorry. And close the door. That, that kind of thing is happening. Um, creates a culture where nudity is acceptable and giving magazines, movies, or, or yes, we can watch this movie together and I will teach you anything you need to know about that. Um, that's, that's one way of, you're, you're the expert on sexuality. And so you're helping that young man know, sickening, but you're helping that young man know uh, what sexual encounters is so that you will be prepared when you get married or when you're in a relationship kind of, kind of thing. Um, and how do I keep them silent? Secrecy, shame them, threat them, threaten them. No one will believe you. This would hurt your mother. This would mess up our youth group uh, kind of threats. All right, so we in our churches can't just do background checks because did we see that statistic already? Background checks, only 10% of people who are abusers show up on a background check. 10%, that means 90% of abusers are not going to show up on a background check. The guy that I had experience with would not have shown up on a background check. And so... And so we're real good at keeping people out of the pen. We're not very good at protecting ourselves inside. So if we notice those behaviors, those things where uh, there's wrestling, there's tickling, there's, there's someone that always wants to be involved. If someone always wants to be involved with a certain age group of boys or a certain age group of girls uh, only, or if it's just the fringe kids. So that doesn't mean they're an abuser. But our antennas ought to still be flying so that we can pay attention. We just got to pay attention. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. So there is a... Uh, now, now, let me back up. When we're doing a mission trip, Hopefully, we've taken care of being aware. Hopefully, we've screened. That means having conversations with our adults, other adults. We've done policies and procedures. We have background checks, and hopefully, we have monitoring and oversight. Hopefully, all that's happening. But in case we've done all this well, we still have to protect those when we're on overnight trips or small groups at our house. Uh, and, and those kinds of things. So what are we going to do? We, one, we've got to put things in place so that it can deter the predator from acting out on whatever it is they're choosing to act out on. We're, I hate to tell you, but we're not going to get rid of predators. We're not. We are a fallen, sinful world. We are not going to get rid of predators. We can educate children in hopes to deter them from becoming a predator, but we're never going to be 100% getting rid of predators. I don't, I don't, we're a sinful world. We're not going to do that. So we have to make sure that wherever we are in our ministry context, that, that predators can't act out their desires when they're where we are. And so if predators know that we, there's, a, there's a church sign, I won't pull it up, but there's a church in Lumberton, Hyde Park Baptist Church, 
And every bathroom has a sign and it tells them how the adults are going to act at that bathroom. I can send it to you. No one will go in the bathroom stall with another child. No one will do this. No, I mean, it's a list. When we're on deep impact camps and DI kids camps, when we're in worship at night, if one kid walks out to go to the bathroom, we leave it alone. If another kid or adult walks out behind them, we automatically have one of our staff members that gets up and at least walks that direction. If two people go into the bathroom, then our staff members are watching for them to come out of the bathroom. And if they're not out in what time it takes to go to the bathroom, they at least walk in to wash their hands. You see what we're doing? We're, we're just doing, th- and we're telling people in adult meetings, we're telling them, we're doing this. If you walk out and one other person walks out, we're following you. You know, we're, we just are. So you're deterring. You've got to do things to deter people. When we're at our mission camps, uh, mission trips, when you take a mission trip to your, with your students or your children, wherever you're staying, you need to be aware of are there any uh, suspect spots like back of buildings, warehouses, things where people can hide behind. And then you need to monitor that with more than just by yourself. Don't ever go by yourself because if one person's back there, then you're going to be accused of something that you may not have done. Does that make sense? So that's that two-adult rule or two-person rule. So like when we're at the Red Springs Mission Camp, there's a warehouse, there's a tool room, there's bedrooms, there's, there's game room, there's worship area, there's bathrooms, there's trailers where people can stay in. So we already know that when we're doing a camp there, every room that we're using stays unlocked. Every room we're not using is locked. So therefore, nobody can go in that room if it's not being used. And therefore, we don't have to worry about people doing things in those rooms that they shouldn't be doing. So that's the first thing we're doing. The second thing we're doing is we're walking around as staff in all those problem spots, the back corners of places, the back of the buildings, the trailers, up on the roof. You can get up on the roof. So we're monitoring all that throughout the afternoon and the evening and all of that. And we're telling people that's what we're doing because we want to deter. So you can do all of the awareness you want. You can do all the background checks you want, but you actually physically have to be actively patrolling, watching, looking, paying attention, uh, and that deters, that's the biggest deterrent is when people are doing that. You have a security team. If you have a security team at your church, somebody that's monitoring the doors in the parking lot, there's nothing wrong with putting a few people on that security team that also helps you monitor the inside of your building as well as the outside. Cameras. Yeah, cameras. We've got cam- We've started putting cameras everywhere except bedrooms and bathrooms. And can I say one thing, too? Even in a church, you know, we're applying that to when we're away at camp. But even in your church, if you recognize somebody walking out, the same kind of thing, because you have different locations of your bathrooms. And and I I know that sometimes kids will leave and then they're hanging out or walking around or they just don't want to come back in the service. But being aware and following that, following up with that, you know, somebody walks out and checks on that to make sure. Or your security team, if you've got a security team, knows to send them back you know. Yeah. Explain two by two rule. Two adults for a free situation. If a child walks out at a certain time every service and an adult walks out behind that child, you need both. You need you need all in my mind, you always need two people that are ready, two non related adults that are on call to where if they, especially if it's every Sunday the same child and the same adult goes out, you see what I'm saying? That's a, that's a trigger. So, so that's when, I mean, to me, not only should you have people walking the outside of your building, you should have people sitting in the congregation, walking the halls during Sunday school, and their job is to make sure that nobody is ever going off with somebody else by themselves. And when I talk about peer-to-peer, it's the same process. 
But most of the time, security teams are there to guard the money. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that the children are more valuable than the money. Yeah, yeah. We're there to guard the money and to guard the pocketbooks in the choir room that was, that's, yeah. you know, while people are singing in the choir. What I'm saying yeah. is maybe the security team needs to be divided yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think and I think small church, big church, I don't think the size of the church matters anymore. And uh, I'm I'm telling I'm just telling you, we're seeing more and more that small family church that everybody is related and everybody knows each other. They're the ones who have the most difficult doing background checks. They're the ones who have the most difficult doing this kind of things. And most likely they're the ones that have predators in their midst because the barriers are the lowest. And it is an educating process because like you said, they're used to security being known for a certain thing and you're introducing them to a whole nother aspect of what security means in your church. So when you do a mission trip or an overnight, one of the things that you should do every single time is you should have a meeting with all of your adults before you ever go on the trip. And you need to spend at least an hour talking about just this topic right here. Not the who's going to cook the meals, who's going who's to do whatever. This right here. It's easy to talk about who's cooking, who's cleaning up, who's managing this and that. This is the most difficult thing to talk about. But honestly, this is the most important thing to talk about when you're doing a mission trip, an overnight, small group study at your house, anything... What we're talking about is anything away from your church, but what we realized when we were putting this together is it, it's the same away from your church as it is at your church. It's the same kind of concepts uh, and those kinds of things. Uh, yeah, we're going to run out of time. I was just going to mention something too. Even in the church setting, and I think you'll get to this in camp, but even those times you got that kid hanging around that needed a ride home and somebody says, let me give you a ride home. And it doesn't need to be a related situation even, again. Even Henry and I, um, we, we keep each other's back. Yes. You always want to protect each other and watch out for each other so that you're protecting the child and yourself. One time um, when I was uh, a youth minister just about 10 years ago, uh, there was no way this child was going to get home if I didn't take them home. I mean, there was no way. They lived about eight miles away from the church. There was, there was abs- That was before Uber. So we couldn't just... So I said to the mom, I will take your son home, but I will talk to my wife on the phone the entire time I'm in the car. So I called my wife and I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm sitting here. And I said, well, I'm taking so-and-so home and I want to talk to you the whole time while I'm taking him home. Well, why are you doing that? Well, I'm protecting him and I'm protecting me. You know, so simple as that, as simple as that, you're talking on the phone to somebody and now everybody has a phone. And so, or the child is always talking to a parent or a friend on the phone. Okay, you have to talk to somebody the whole time. It can be on speakerphone. See, you see, so you, you should never take somebody home like that. But if you absolutely have to, then talk, tell them you have to talk to somebody on speakerphone the whole time. Or you talk to your spouse the whole time. Or your best friend the whole time. And you can talk on speakerphone. I mean, you're not going to say anything that shouldn't be said in front of somebody else. Anyway, so you can do things to protect yourself when you find yourself in that situation that there's no other way to do it. Okay, he's talking about while we go about the uh, spouse. Uh-huh. You know, two people. Well, I drive the van, pick up the kids on Wednesday night, mm-hmm. take the kids. But my wife always drives with me. Mm-hmm. Is that... Acceptable? It's really not acceptable. Um, it really should be a, non-rela- a non-related adult. Because if you do something wrong, most likely, the, most times the spouse is going to cover for you. That's where the non-related, that's why it's important to try to do non-related. Um, and uh, it, it's just always better not to have. Now, that's a good way for spouses to serve together, but the way to get away from that is just put another adult in there and you and your spouse can still go. You just have another adult with you. So there's three adults in the van or the bus. Your spouse can go with you. You just got to have another adult. 
And an adult is not a 16-year-old boy or girl. And a helper in nursery is not a 16-year-old boy or girl. I mean, your two-adult rule is two adults, not a responsible 16-year-old. They can help, but that doesn't count as one of your two-adult rules. And they wouldn't be your bathroom helper or something like that. You know, a lot of times that's what it turns into. They have a younger youth in there helping the two adults. Oh, well, you take them. You do the bathroom duty. Well, that's not wise. We, we, like I say, this is more than an hour. So there's going to be a whole lot of questions probably. But Okay, so what are some boundaries that you can have? Whether you're in a church, mission trip, that kind of stuff, overnight. No flags or blankets covering bedding or hanging from the bedding. You know how some kids just like to be private and they hang, they do flags and, or blankets and so they have their own space. The problem becomes that's a private space. You can't see. No shower checks. I was a youth, I've been a youth minister for 20-something years other than what I've done with bathroom men. And only one time have I walked into a bathroom when another kid was in the shower because the shower door just fell off and crashed. And it was a safety thing. That's the only single time I've ever been in the shower or in the bathroom when a kid was in the shower. There is never a reason to be in there unless it is a... Somebody's fixing to get cut because a shower door just explodes. You know, that's never. Medical checks need to go to medical personnel. Medical personnel. You should never do medical checks. You know, just call EMS. No special privileges. That's a a red flag. That boy on the fringe who you know probably is drinking and doing a little bit of drugs and then that man or that woman that's give them special privileges oh i can't let anybody else do that but i'll let you do that because you have needs that's a red flag uh don't ignore anyone who feels uncomfortable or unsafe no physical touching between non-related adults and what we tell chaperones who are man and wife boyfriend, girlfriend on Deep Impact DI Kids, we don't want to see that you're married this week. No touching. Model the appropriate behavior. And there should be never any post-activity contact between adults and youth and children. Now, what's that got to do? So if you take a group to Caswell, there's a thousand kids at Caswell, and you lead a small group, and you've gotten to know all these youth and kids in your small group Bible study. The contact ends when everybody goes home. You don't friend anybody on social media. You don't get phone numbers. You don't do that. You protect yourself. It is not good to be communicating with teenagers who are not part of your circle, who are not part of your church, who are not part of anything that you ever do. And if you see anybody in your churches that are doing that, that's a flag. That's a red flag. Now, peer-to-peer. So, one of the most, the growing abuse is same age or close to the same age. We are living in a sex-saturated culture. We're, We're living in that. We're living in that. Now, We've always had issues all the way back to biblical times on sexuality. I mean, that's why Jesus talked about it. There's always been an issue. But today, there, is, there are more things being thrown at, not just kids, but adults that are sexually explicit and they don't even know it. So part of the reason that we think a 13-year-old is abusing or starting to abuse is they're seeing things that they don't understand and so they're trying to understand it and they're just taking some kind of deviant pathway to try to understand what it is that they're seeing but they don't understand. Did that make sense? So that's part of what's happening. So when we are watching in our churches on mission trips or anything like that, when we're watching for the adult flags, we also need to be watching for the same thing with youth. That's why at a deep impact, when a youth walks out to go somewhere from wherever, if another person, youth, adult, doesn't matter, walks to follow them, we get up and we follow them. 
Does that make sense? Because we're not distinguishing by age. We're not distinguishing by gender. We're distinguishing by who gets up and leaves and who follows them. And then we're going to we're gonna sort of intervene or in a roundabout kind of way. Um, and you're primarily talking here sexual abuse, not like verbal abuse. That's correct. So prominent in- that's correct. Bullying is bullying. But if someone is allowed to bully someone over and over and over, then it, there are statistics that say that it can turn into sexual. Uh, but most of the time, bullying is just bullying. But now it can turn into something uh, more sexual because sometimes bullying the, the, the young man or the young woman who wants to abuse somebody, whatever mental whatever is going on there, bullying is how it exhibits itself first. And then it moves into something, you know, different. Where, where, is, where is the connection? <laughs> I wish I knew. I think if we knew where the connection was, we might be able to solve some of this. I, I, I don't know. I mean, between bullying and sexual abuse. Oh, where is the connection? Well, yeah, controlling power. Yeah, controlling power. Absolutely. And that's why you see that 90% of the abusers are men. And only 10% are women. But now, the women abuser, that statistics is growing. But uh, men, um, I I think, now I don't want to get into that. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say, inequality between men and women has instituted some of the power over women. And that's been ingrained in young boys as well. And so... That power, that inequality, that inequality word is quite difficult to talk about in our day and time. But that, that power and the need for power and the need to be the one that's in the right, and it's just a power. It's got to be power. With same-sex um, peer-to-peer, a lot of it is the imbalance of a younger or smaller child, uh, smaller. a weaker child mm-hmm. with an older child. Um, had a situation that I'm aware of where a younger brother, older brother's friends, you know, they, they were doing an initiation and it became a peer-to-peer abuse situation. Um, but it was the friends and the older brother because of the power they had over this younger brother. And I think part of it is, I mean, we all know, we all know the, the hormonal power that when we hit puberty, we all know what that is. Every one of us in this room know what that is. And so when you put together someone who doesn't have um, anyone to talk to about that or parents that choose to turn away from completely talking to their children, uh, when you have a, a single parent home, when you, it's, it's like the perfect storm. You know, all these things are lining up to where it is creating this huge problem. And um, man, I, I could talk about it a long time. <laughs> we got to keep moving. Okay, so what are high risk areas? And this is church. This is also mission trips and those kinds of things. Bathrooms. The majority of abuse happens in bathrooms. Why? They're stalls. And so that means that when you are sending children to the bathroom, you're standing, especially small children, you're standing in the door, but you're not in the stall with them. And when a child needs help with their zipper or their button or something like that, you're not in the stall with them. You're in the bathroom proper and somebody else knows what you're doing. You're communicating with people. You're saying, hey, I'm helping them snap their button or I'm helping them zip their pants or I'm helping them put their belt back on. Because we know fine motor skills aren't learned until kids get to be a little older. And so you're just communicating with that other adult in your room. Hey, I'm helping them. You're telling what you're doing out loud. You're helping people know you're protecting yourself and you're protecting the child. Uh, Closets, dark corners, warehouses, any place that I mean I've started when I when I go to churches to do a conference I was in John's church a couple weeks ago doing an associational meeting and for some reason when I was walking through the back parking lot I was thinking 
Now, if I was here, that would be a spot that I would make sure that I was always watching. Because we've talked about this for months. This is almost all we've done for months and months and months and months to try to help churches. And so anytime I'm in a church now, that it just automatically, my mind goes to, oh, that's a problem spot. Oh, that's a good lit, lit spot. You know, So you've got to be looking for those around your churches or mission trips, camps, wherever you are. Anybody take kids to Caswell? Anybody let, anybody let their kids go in the forts after dark even though you're not supposed to? Anybody think their kids go in the forts after dark? Yeah, you really need to know where your kids are at Catholic. I mean, it's a great place, don't get me wrong. We love Deep Impact. We have Deep Impact there. We have 500 youth and their leaders, and we probably will have 100 kids and their leaders there just doing Deep Impact and DI Kids. It's a great place, but we have to be more vigilant to make sure we know where our kids are at all times. And, and we need to help our kids understand that if something bothers you or is affecting you, you can come and talk to me without being judged if, if, if you're uncomfortable. If you're uncomfortable. Yeah, the forts should bother you. Uh, a lot of things have happened in the forts that, that are not Christian. And they should bother you. Um, watch for bullying. Watch for the imbalance of power. We've talked about that already. The big child, the small child. Um, special needs children. Anybody who does not have an avenue to speak up for themselves. Communicate with other staff. Talk to each other. So a screening process, but backing up before you ever go on a trip, you know, do you do an application? You do an application for employees. Do you have a volunteer application? Do you have any references? Do you do an interview? Do you do a background check? Uh, past employment, volunteer information. Now, there's a lot of insurance companies are going to do all this with you. It is not a bad idea to call your insurance company and say, send me everything you have or tell me where on your website I can find anything to help my church be a better uh, protector of children, youth, and our church. And, you know, talk about the gospel. I mean, we, we haven't talked about the gospel much, but ultimately the gospel is what suffers uh, in all of this. Um, how do we create a policy and procedures document? There again, your insurance company is a good place. Other churches that have them is a good place. Just don't put your name on them and say we're done. Make sure people in your churches are educated. Before you leave, I have a resource page. I'll mention it again. That has a ton of resources for you just to get on there and check all these things out. They give you ideas. Um, once again, as he said, do not take a template of a policy and procedure and put your name on it because it should be geared towards your church. So a lot of people ask, I get lots of phone calls. What is your ratio for youth to adults on an overnight camp? And we say one to seven, but it's always good to start with two per gender. So gender. So you may have six boys and six girls. And even though our policy is one to seven, you would think you, can only, you only need one male chaperone and one female chaperone. Which is fine, and if you're in a barrack-style room, there's going to be seven people in there. So the likelihood of you being a groomer, the one adult with those seven kids, and anything happening in that room with those seven kids, that's way, way low. I mean, less than 0.2% or something like that. But if you can, if you can get two men for six kids, and, or six boys, and two women for six girls, oh, You've just done a whole lot better. And, and, and I'm just going to be real honest with you. When someone calls me and says, but that's an extra $400 for the cost of camp. And I honestly just want to say, okay, you know, $400? Really? I mean, I, I mean, I'm all about $400. That's a lot of money to me. But when you say that the money, it's too expensive for you to have one more adult or two more adults, when you're talking about the protection of your children and youth, you really need to rethink that. Do an ex, sell a couple extra barbecue shoulders. You know, I, I don't know. I, I'm a little bit jaded with that because my phone rings all the time. Why do I have to have this many adults? Because we're protecting you. And we're protecting your children and we're protecting the gospel. You know, so. But here's, here's good. Uh, you know, one adult to two children. That's like in a nursery. In a nursery. Kind of one to two year olds. 
6 to 8, 9 to 14, 1 to 8, you know, that kind of, of thing. Tom, yeah. so easy to picture barracks and having two men in the barracks, mm-hmm. all right? As a youth pastor, I never let, you're on a ski retreat, right? So you've rented 10 different hotel rooms, uh-huh. you've got four kids in each. Uh-huh. You can't put a parent in every room, you don't want to, I never would. What's your answer for that? Uh, so I, I had my own procedure for how I knew the kids. Well, what I used to do and what I would do now are two different things. As long as I had one adult and three and two youth in a room, because I never slept a youth with an adult. Um, and even if it was a parent and one youth, I still only put two youth and an adult. Today, I would put four youth in a room and I would put adults in a room. I would never ever put an adult and youth in a room. It will cost me more. Um, the only time I would put an adult and a youth in the room is if it's a, a dad and a son, a mom and a daughter, either a mom and a son or a dad and a daughter. It doesn't matter. But they could have a room to themselves, but I'm not, but I'm not putting any other adults in a room with the youth. I'll put them in barracks, I'll put them in cabins, but not in hotel rooms. You're um, using the hotel. I found that by using the rooms that are joined with common doors, mm-hmm. that's a help. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. As long as uh, nobody closes those doors. Yeah. Yeah. And nowadays, too, though, whatever you're doing, you can rent even smallest houses. Yeah. You know, for yeah. mm-hmm. going on a ski trip or you're going you know, wherever, you can rent them. Small house enough for eight Yeah. So before we have time for questions, we have three minutes, and but I want to be able to you to have questions. What do you do if you have abuse? Well, one, you need to know who to talk to. We've got a resource page. There's here, but North Carolina is a must-report state. So if you see abuse, if you see what you think is abuse. You can anonymously report in North Carolina, but every adult have to report. Now, if you call and you make a report and it turns out to be false, you are not, you are not legally um, in trouble, accountable. And I just tell people, do it anonymously. Just report it. Let the authorities. Now, sometimes you want to call if, and if you know someone's being abused, then child protective services, social services is who you call first. If it's like a danger situation, then you call the sheriff's department, uh, 911. But you can always call 911 and they will tell you, yes, we will report it or call social services. But North Carolina is a must report state. If you see something, you need to do it in the first 24 hours. You're not the investigator. Part of the problem in the church I was in is the pastor decided to be an investigator. And three days later, the man was dead. And if we'd have turned it over to the authorities, like some of us wanted to, then he probably would not have had a chance to to end his life. Uh, Create a response team. Uh, There again, we could talk hours about this. We'll send you this. If you'll give us your email address, we'll send you uh, this or take pictures of it. Insurance company, professional counseling. I've taken counseling courses, but I'm not a counselor. I'm really good at referring. It doesn't mean I don't want to deal with you. It just means that I know that I am very limited in what I can do, so I'm going to refer you to someone. And if I'm in a church and something happens, then my church is going to help take care of the counseling that needs to to happen uh, with that. But North Carolina, legally, you are, legally, you're obligated. But more than that, ethically, I think all of us are obligated to report. And that doesn't mean if you have a volunteer and they say, well, oh, I better take it to the children's minister first and then I better take it. Those people need to be communicated with, but that person is required by law to report it. They do. North Carolina doesn't say if you know, it says if you suspect. If you suspect, that's correct. And there is nothing about uh, like pastor counseling privilege. None of that applies here. No confidentiality applies with pastors, lawyers, that kind of thing. If you suspect or you know there's abuse, 
You report it. Don't investigate. Let the people who are the professionals investigate it. 